Let's Cover That podcast is brought to you by CM&F Group, professional liability services for over 200 healthcare professions. Visit our website at cmfgroup.com slash podcast for more info. Good morning. Thanks for being here. So we're going to spend a few minutes this morning talking. Well, actually, the title of the presentation is Learning from Experience you know, real world examples of malpractice claims. And we're gonna talk shortly about malpractice, but then there's two cases that I wanna to present to you, uh, real cases in terms of uh, PAs who were involved in malpractice cases. All right, thank you. So first of all, let's be clear what malpractice is. Basically malpractice is negligence. It's when a clinician um, is found guilty of negligence something that, that went wrong. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about uh, negligence and, and about malpractice for PAs is if you would ask me 50 years ago if PAs were sued and people would scratch their head and say, I don't know, I don't know any PAs who were sued. Um, but now, now we, we do know that PAs are involved in malpractice suits. And why is that? Because there are now a lot of us. Um, people know who we are, particularly attorneys. You know, and so, and it would play big, playing a major component in, in healthcare. And so, what happens is, uh, you know, PAs do get involved in malpractice cases. So, really, when we talk about negligence, we're talking about a PA that doesn't measure up to the standard of care. Um, and uh, if the malpractice caused harm, a lawsuit, you know, may be filed to recover damages for the harm that was suffered. Okay. The Healthcare Quality Improvement Act passed back in 1986 requires that all malpractice uh, payments, in other words, losses, you know, payment that occur because from, the, from the insurance company, um, it, it has to be reported to the National Practitioner Database. And that goes there permanently, and it's for any kind of payment that occurs. If you look at some of the recent research in terms of claims, you can look here. If you looked at 54,772 claims, you can see that PAs were defendants without AP, uh, APRNs or nurse practitioners um, or physicians in about 26 of those claims. So let me repeat that. That means there are 26 claims um, that where PAs were named without a physician. Uh, nurse practitioners were defendants without a PAs or physicians in 63 cases, and not surprisingly, physicians were defendants without PAs or NPs in 37,354 cases. So about 75 of claims naming um, advanced practice providers co-named physicians. So more claims naming PAs and RN nurse practitioners were paid on behalf of the hospital in practice, 38 and 32% respectively compared with physician claims there. Payments were less likely for inpatient care. You can see here, see the data there. And the really important thing that I want you to take away from this today is claims against PAs usually fall into about four areas. Number one, lack of adequate supervision. Uh, that tends to be the most common one. Untimely referral, failure to diagnose, and the other one is inadequate examination. So those are usually the four components uh, where PAs uh, are sued for malpractice. So what is negligence? To win a negligence case and recover damages from a PA, 
a patient has to prove each of these three elements. So they have to prove that the PA owed the patient a duty of care. Well, that's pretty common. You know, somebody walks into the office or comes up to the, the emergency room or it's a patient in surgery, uh, the PA that's involved in that does have a duty, you know, to care. Then they have to prove that the PA breached that duty. We'll talk about how that occurs in a minute. And if it was breached, then the patient was harmed as a result of the PA's action or failure to act. So the plaintiff's attorney has to approve all three of these things to prove a negligence case. Okay, once that occurs and that's proven, then they have to determine, you know, the fourth element, which if there was a duty, if there was a breach of standard of care, and what was the proximate cause, uh, and if that's the case, then the, pa the patient, I mean, the PA would be liable um, for that malpractice. Okay, we're going to talk about a couple of cases now. So let me go through this real quickly. So this is a 76-year-old female who came to a dermatology practice complaining of an unexplained peak, scaly, and itchy rash on her arms, palms, and legs. She was a resident of an extended living center, had been seen a week earlier by her primary care physician uh, for an itchy rash on her torso, and she was placed on over-the-counter Benadryl. She was also placed on fluconazole for what the provider called oral thrush uh, on the same date. So when the rash did not improve and actually got worse, the RN at the extended uh, living center suggested a referral to the dermatologist. So the patient was seen the next day. History revealed hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, um, and the patient was a former smoker. So the patient was seen by both the PA and the dermatologist in the dermatology practice. The patient stated that the rash had started a week earlier, was getting worse, um, had now moved to her hands, arms, and palms. Uh, the Benadryl has really not helped. So she denied any cough or sore throat, no shortness of breath, you know, really no other symptoms. Medications are here, lisinopril, robostatin, Benadryl, the fluconazole we talked about. Okay, physical exam, fairly unremarkable until you get to the skin, but there's the blood pressure and the pulse. Um, the lungs were clear, the abdomen was fine. You go to their examination of the skin revealed geographic macular lesions of both arms, palms, and the trunk. The patient was given topical hydrocortisone cream, 2.5%, to the rash three times a day and increased the Benadryl to 50 milligrams three times a day. The patient was told to return if she got worse, otherwise to return in a week. So fairly, fairly common uh, presentation to the dermatology practice. Unfortunately, since we're talking about it, the, the three days later, the rash got worse, got painful, a lot of sloughing occurred, the patient was taken to the emergency room, and the patient was found to have large blistering areas of epidermis with several bullae over the back uh, trunk and lower extremities, and a lot of them being lysed by pressure over the sites, and she had a fever of 104 degrees. So things turned bad quickly here. She was diagnosed with Steven Johnson syndrome and topical epidermal necrolysis due to peeling blisters, which was confirmed by bi biopsy at that time. Because of the acuteness of the symptoms, she was admitted to the burn unit, but unfortunately died the next day. So we have, we have a death. So the PCP, the dermatologist, and the PA were all sued for malpractice for missing the diagnosis of Steven Johnson syndrome and uh, leading to her demise. So the plaintiff's attorneys opined that the cause of the 
condition was likely the fluconazole uh, that was given by the primary care provider uh, a week or two earlier. A medication, according to them, should have been discontinued by the PCP, but certainly by the physician and the PA in the dermatology practice. So that was the basis of the case. So when reviewing the medical records of the dermatology practice, um, it was noted that a medication list was not present in the medical chart. Uh, the PA does describe asking the patient about her medication history, and the PA testified that he saw the patient alongside the physician, although the notes were created and posted solely by the PA. So the real question here, now the, and granted, it's a very short this description of the case. In these cases, if you get the case, it's binders and binders of testimony. But you sort of get the gist of the issue. So, and the question in this case is, did the PA have a duty to care? Obviously, yes, that was referred there. The real question is, did the PA breach that duty? So, and how do we find that out? During discovery, uh, expert witnesses are hired to come in both for the plaintiff and for the defendant and talking about whether the PA met standard of care or didn't. So um, based on, on what we've talked about, how many of you think that the, P, the PA breached the standard of care here? Anybody? A couple of you? How many feel that, that they didn't breach the standard of care? A few of you? How many have no clue? There you go, that's fine, okay. Um, and if, if you feel that the PA breached the standard of care, then you have to ask the question, did that breach of the standard of care lead to ultimately the death of this patient? And that if this goes to trial, then that's what the jury is going to decide. Okay, so real quickly here, the issue was that they missed, you know, the diagnosis that led to the patient's death. And if they had uh, removed the fluconazole uh, medication, that that might have saved her life. So, all righty. Well, what, so the question is really, what happened? So after years of discovery, if you've ever been involved in malpractice cases, you know that it takes years and years for malpractice cases to sort of move through the system, through the discovery phase. So um, in this case, uh, the case went to trial, a trial verdict, which is actually fairly rare. Most cases get settled prior to getting to trial. But in this case, um, the trial verdict, and it closed without indemnity for payment. Well, this means that the court did not find the PA negligent in this. So now what I don't know is what happened to the, the primary care physician. But what I can tell you is that in this case, the PA was found you know, not liable for the death of the patient, okay? So you sort of get the gist of, of, of how that works. We'll go to the second case. This is a 51-year-old male presented to the family medicine clinic for a follow-up uh, on an injury a week earlier. He was working in the garage, the patient was, and moving some boxes when a sheet of glass fell on the dorsum of his foot causing a five-inch laceration. He was taken to the local emergency department by his daughter. The ER doc examined, cleaned, and explored the wound, noted the tendons to be intact, sutured, were applied, and the patient was told to follow up with his PCP in four to six days. If you work in the ER, you see lots of these. So the PA saw the patient in the family, I mean, yeah, the PA saw the patient in the family medicine clinic where he is a, a known patient. Vital signs are there, were normal. The patient takes one baby aspirin a day. She's been taking Tylenol three times a day for some discomfort. Patient complained of a small amount of discomfort and some redness around the wound. Patient examined the foot and, and the PA examined the foot 
and was able to get the movement of all toes, although a couple of the toes had minimal movement due to the pain and all the pulses were intact. The kind of exam that he would hope everybody would do uh, when they came to uh, follow up for this kind of an injury. So examination of the wound showed minimal tenderness and erythema. Patient did not have diabetes. That's a precautionary measure. And after determining the patient was not allergic to any medications, the PA did prescribe some cephalexin every 12 hours for 10 days just to cover the patient. And a follow-up appointment and suture removal was suggested for five to seven days. Pretty common follow-up. Two days later, as the pain in the foot got worse, the patient was seen by a local podiatrist who noted an increase in redness and pain surrounding the wound. The patient was really anxious and the podiatrist ordered an MRI which showed tendon damage of the third, fourth, and fifth tendons. Okay, so orthopedic surgeon was called and the patient took patient surgery to repair uh, what he called shredded tendons. The patient did not do well post-surgery and with a continuation of pain and numbness and mobility limitations. Six months later, he still had pain and numbness, was placed on Welbutrin, then increased at three days after that on Gabapentin, um, and like that. So, due to his lack of mobility, the patient could not perform his vocation as a male person and continued to have numbness and immobility. The ER doc and the PA were sued uh, for malpractice. Remember, the doc in the ER was the one that, that, that uh, sutured up the wound. The PA was in the family practice that did follow up to this case. Uh, they were sued for missing a diagnosis of tendon lacerations. The plaintiff's expert opined that the tendons were not adequately visualized by the ER doc and should have been referred urgently to an orthopedic surgeon. They also testified that the PA in follow-up should have immediately referred the patient to an orthopedist. Okay, so all medical records were reviewed again during discovery phase. The ER doc testified that he had examined and explored the wound carefully he did not see any tendon damage. The PA also testified that she was able to get movement in all toes, albeit some were a bit sluggish. PA was an excellent witness and a very experienced PA in the, in the community. She explained clearly that her care and treatment of the patient seeing no reason for an urgent referral to an orthopedist. So again, so the first thing is, did the, did the PA have a duty to care for the patient? Absolutely. Second question, did the PA, you know, breach that care? So by not sending the uh, patient to an orthopedic surgery during the follow-up of that tendon laceration repair. So how many people think that the PA breached that care? I don't see any hands. How many people feel that the, the PA met the standard of care in this case? So a lot more people, okay. And since nobody thought that the PA breached the care, you know, then looking at the proximate cause. Okay, so what happened? In this case, the PA was dropped from the case. And, uh, and that's a fortunate thing. Unfortunately, the physician um, who was also sued settled, settled out of court, uh, which happens very frequently. Um, but in this case, the, the, after a couple of years of discovery, having expert witnesses, the PA was dropped from the case. Now that's good. But if you've ever been sued, it's not a great experience, even if you settle, you know, out of court. Okay, so let's talk really quick about liability insurance. There, there are really two kinds uh, of insurance. There's what's called occurrence-based and claims-made. And the best way to explain that is occurrence-based insurance, which is usually recommended, um, 
is something that if you start today and you uh, work for a company for five years and then you leave and something occurred during that five years, um, a, a malpractice case is, is uh, filed during that five years, even though you're gone, you know, with occurrence-based insurance, it will cover you. If you have claims made, during, it only covers you during that five-year period of time, if that's the time that you worked. And if you leave and then you're sued, then you need to have what's called tail coverage, uh, which is relatively ex expensive as well. So when you're looking for you know, the kind of insurance that you want, you need to determine whether you want occurrence-based or claims made. Remember, occurrence is probably a little bit more expensive. The second thing that I would say is, my opinion, is that uh, if you're going to get some malpractice insurance, that it ought to be something that's in your name, that's, you know, that, and that's, that's good because that means your name is on, on the document. And if you are sued, then the insurance company uh, helps, you know, find you a, a, an attorney and works with that attorney. So rather than a lot of places now um, have vicarious liability in the practice. And the problem with vicarious liability, while it covers you, it also covers everybody else in the practice and you share and you share in the limits of that liability. So, all right. Great. Time for questions, I think. Lots of people here. You should have. To, yes. Um, so you talked about a tail so let me see if I understand your question. So when should you buy tail insurance is the question. And so again, if you if you have um, uh, if you have occurrence, you know, then you don't need tail insurance. And well, if you if you can help me out with questions, um, it, it, but if you have claims made, then that's when you need to have tail insurance that'll cover the time from the time you left that practice on. So, was that right? Good. Do you want to repeat the question for everybody? Now you're in trouble. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you. Great, great talk. Uh, I, my question was, when would be the appropriate time to get tail insurance? Typically, I, I mean, personally, I, I, I have my own malpractice and I have an occurrence policy, but I don't have tail. So when is the best time to get tail insurance? Just how you understood my question was. So I just... Yes. That was the question. Yeah, my understanding is if you have occurrence, you don't need tail. If you have claims made uh, that would only cover the period of time, then you need to get tail. And the best time to get that, you know, is just before you leave that practice to cover you further on. Make sense? Yeah, so you're, you're all set. And it's, occurrence will be more costly on the front end because it's a flat cost going forward. Uh, claims made will start usually around 20 to 30% of the occurrence rate, and then it steps up every year. And when you buy tail, it's usually like 200% cost to cover all of the years prior. So that's what Randy means by it could be a little bit costly at the front end, but the tail could really come in and you're starting to move on with your life, and now you've got this massive liability if you don't buy it and a higher cost. Over here. 
how long would you need tail insurance? Like, is there a statute of limitation on suing so, uh, Yeah, statute of limitations depends on every state based on care, you know, based on the age of maturity of the patient, right? So it all depends if you're a pediatric population until their age of competency, plus two, three years on top of that, right? The tail will vary depending on the insurance company you work with. Some will only do it for a year. They'll kind of lower the cost. Some will do two, three, five years. Some do unlimited. We do unlimited for ours, so it, it does vary. Um, like Randy was mentioning, a lot of these cases go through the process, takes years to do it. You know, you, you could be getting these claims, you know, as you have full practice authority opening up the practice now, you have something from five, seven years ago. So it is something I, I would look for an indefinite or unlimited tail. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was uh, uh, talking yesterday with a colleague who was a, an expert witness in a case where the uh, the same attorney in the case uh, uh, was the attorney for the clinic and the physician and the PA. And it turns out that it was a surg surgical uh, complication. Turns out that the physician was in error, and uh, to clear the the PA had the same physician. I mean, the same attorney the PA, the PA had to be shown that there was that there was no liability going on, even though the physician, um, you know, had had made an error. The point I'm making is, you know, that gets kind of hairy if you have the same attorney, you know, taking care of the clinic and the physician and the PA, which is why having your own insurance, you know, gives you an opportunity to have your own attorney to take care of your your needs. This is similar to to buy tail insurance, but for people that are leaving clinical practice, either through retirement or entering a non-clinical position, what's your recommendation as far as tail coverage for those individuals that are in clinical practice? Yeah, I, I mean, you still need it. I mean, it, it, it occurred something over, something happened here, and depending on the statute of limitations, you know, as Will said, you know, you're still going to need that, even though you no longer practicing. Yeah, and it's, usually they only give you a window to do so you usually get 30, 60 days max with most companies once you're done practicing and your, your coverage is expired or terminated. So you can't wait. Like Randy's saying, if you know you're going to leave a company and you're moving on with your life, you want to immediately talk to that non-practice carrier and say, hey, I'm doing this in 45 days. Get the price up front and figure out because the cost can be a, a big amount. And sometimes you can negotiate that with an employer or they'll say, hey, we cover that for you too. So there's other iterations involved. And then you kind of move on with it. But the liability and incidents doesn't change just because you start doing medical writing and teaching, right? Still an instance of, of cost. Um, there's a really great resource out there. It's called medmalreviewer.com. I don't know if people are familiar with it, but it takes you through different lawsuits and uh, testimony and all that. You can read that as a provider. But the theme that I see when I receive these, they come out like about once a month, and it seems like the amount is always far superior than what people have. I think most people have like a one, three million policy. And so I'm just wondering, like when someone sues for uh, a crazy amount, 10 million, 15 million, that clearly the PA is not gonna make that much money in their career, who pays that and, and how does that work? It's kind of a, probably very intimidating for most of us, but I was wondering about that. Yeah, great question. Um, and I think we all know the answer to that. Um, and that is, you know, that you, you, you buy a, a, a policy and you determine the amounts, you know, based on, based on whichever you choose. 
you know, and when that, if, if you're sued and, and you were found guilty for limits above that, you're responsible for that. You know, and, and now the it, good thing is if you're, usually you're not the only one sued. So other people will, will share, you know, in what the, what the limits are. But uh, usually if, you, if, if it goes above the limit and you're found guilty by a jury, uh, you're responsible for that. Yeah, so that's why we always kind of teach people, listen, like, we live in America, you're personally liable for what you do. Whether you work for a company or not, what's that? Well, I, think, well, I think so. What, one of the things, you know, from an external point of view of doing the insurance realm is what Randy's talking about is like the supervision realm. You know, if you drop that dock off of those cases, you know, okay, maybe you're not liable, but you could be spending now years of your life in anguish about what's going on in my life. Am I going to get sued for $500,000, $2 million? You're going to be a primary target or at least hire so, right? Um, so you might not pay out the liability, but the cost of defending is a big aspect of what you need to know. Um, most, you know, if you want a good insurance policy, you want to make sure the defense is outside your liability because you could pay $2 million for a claim. Pay a million for liability, a million for defense. And some policies just say, we only cover the liability and defense up to a limit. And now you're done and you're, you're on the hook for that. So that, that's, you're personally liable with your own assets that go just like anything else in the country. Yeah, and, and that's a very good question. And the answer to your question, what's going to happen as the states start taking away supervision requirements? We don't know. Time will tell on that. However, what we do know is that PAs are held to a standard of care, just like physicians are, and, and expert witnesses determine that. That's not going to change. So, you know, as long as, as PAs continue to, to keep, you know, quality care, you know, that scope of practice will be determined. So time will tell, but, you know, I think, I think we're in a good position uh, just because there are many studies, as you know, out there, that look at the quality of care compared to other providers. Yeah, but what I would say is you, you need to be thinking about this before you get to that point. Yeah, you don't want to understand how to run a business and what the risks are related to that right after you get full practice and you're looking at working on something. We'll be looking at, do you have a business model that's commercially viable? What can I get sued for? Okay, I'm going to do these type of procedures. What's the risk of that? Or I could use lesser risk ones and kind of have more recurring revenue. But that's the same as you look for your risks too, for all sorts. Other, other questions, we've got time for one or two more. Thanks. Um, I work for a hospital and I have a one three million dollar policy do you have insight into whether providers will have that type of insurance or get additional insurance, or do you see that most providers who fall under that category are okay? They're sort of murky to tack on additional insurance, or whether you're fine with a hospital who gives that sort of so I'm, I'm trying to understand the question. So is the hospital providing the insurance or you're providing it? Uh, the, hospital provides, the hospital provides $1 million in, plan, in occurrences, $3 million in. Gotcha. So you're asking, should you buy some of your own on top of that? Right, exactly. Yeah. Practicing emergency medicine. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, and, and Will, you can jump in on this, but first of all, I would, I would take a look at that policy to be clear 
you know, where you stand in that policy, whether it's vicarious liability that the hospital is going to cover you and a bunch of other folks, which means you share in the in the, the limits. That's right. Um, it's for each provider, they have that occurrence, but it's under policy. Right. So, so if, if I understand that correctly, you're going to share in that one million, three million. So right. if two or three of you get sued and, and the suit is successful, you know, you're all going to share in that, and so you may be liable for anything above that. So, so the so my suggestion is if you, is to get your own insurance on top of that. So that it covers you and the insurance carrier will cover an attorney to take care of that for you. Be interesting what other folks thought. To follow that up, do you have any recommendations on asset protection? So if I buy a house and I can get sued for my house, should I buy that house as an LLC business and make sure that no one sue me for my property? Do you have recommendations? Great question. We could spend another three hours on that one. You know. Um, First of all, I, I would get a professional to give you that advice. You know, I'm not an attorney, I'm not an accountant, um, but there are some great articles out there about protecting your assets. You know, and uh, um, if, if you have that concern, I think it's a great idea to get some advice on that. Yeah, I think when, another piece that just think about that when you're working for an employer, they don't normally cover license defense. <laughs> Hospitals might cover you jointly with everybody else's issue from a liability perspective, but if this is a license issue, they might say you're on your own. The frequency that you see with a lot of folks like MPs, PAs, nurses is usually on the frequency of license issues and disciplinary issues. Those can be just to pay an expert to defend you on that five, ten thousand dollars with the lawyers. So it's something to think about. And then also when you have your own liability policy, it's got to have your name and it covers you with your own advocate at the same time as the hospital. They can work in conjunction as a team, but you, you have to be aware at some point the risk is going to fall someplace. And as for like asset protection, I think that's where you talk to a financial advisor. They can advise you on, hey, we got an attorney in town, you got to set up your estate planning. Maybe you should put your home in trust, you know, your 529s, all that type of stuff that Randy could spend three hours talking about. So it's, it's a lot of information. Another question that always comes up is, why should I get my own insurance to have these limits because you know then, then I have money in my pocket that people can come after you know that's I, I think that's sort of a weak argument I would much rather you know make sure that I'm covered um, you know for anything that comes up other other questions last question well it's been wonderful thank you guys for spending a few minutes with us <laughs>